Toledo. Consider this. You're in Ankara, Turkey on October 15, 1927. You arrive at the convention of the People's Party of the Republic of Turkey. Turkey has gone through some major changes in recent times. So too has the whole region for that matter. The recent changes in the Muslim world are just as drastic. It seems just yesterday that the Muslim world was united, but then again it also seems like just yesterday that Turkey was under attack by the Triple Entente. Regardless, you've lived through the upheaval and you're here to discuss the future of Turkey, which just declared itself to be a republic three years ago. The speaker ascends to the podium, where he begins recounting, very assertively, the situation in Turkey just after World War I. He says, Adana belonged to the French, Antep and other provinces belong to the British, Konya and Anatalia are under the control of the Italians. Even the Greek army has a peace. They landed in Izmir with permission of the Triple Entente. The speaker's emotions begin to build as he speaks of Istanbul. Here, he claims, secret groups are forming with the support of the British. Who is at the head of these groups? None other than Mehmet VI, the Ottoman Sultan and Caliph. Mehmet is seeking protection from the Brits. His passion begins to grow as he calls out, quote, We were compelled to rebel against the Ottoman government, against the Sultan, against the Caliph of all the Muslims, and we had to bring the whole nation and army into a state of revolt." End quote. The Turkish nation, he asserted, should live in honor and dignity. Such a condition could only be attained by complete independence. No matter how wealthy and prosperous a nation may be, if it is deprived of its independence, it no longer deserves to be regarded as anything more than a slave in the eyes of the civilized world. He continues, the Turk is dignified and proud. He is also capable and talented. Such a nation would prefer to die rather than subject itself to a life of slavery. Therefore, independence or death. The man in front of you is none other than Mustafa Kemal, Ataturk, the father of the Turkish people, who fought the Ottomans from within, ended the caliphate, and established a republic. From Toledo Society, I'm Professor Said Khan, and this is 1400 OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in modern Muslim history. In this series, we look into the key events in the Muslim world over the last two centuries and dig deep into some of the root causes of the situation many find themselves in today. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series on the fall of the Caliphate. By now, if you've listened to the episodes regarding the aftermath of World War I, you'd appreciate the chaos that was rampant across the Middle East. It was Muslim versus Muslim, Ottoman versus Arab. The conflict stretched across the Muslim world, from Medina and Mecca to Turkey and Syria. In this episode, we will look into the situation within Turkey and understand Mustafa Kemal's rise to power. We'll investigate the context surrounding his rise and then ultimately his push to officially dismantle the caliphate. In the opening story, we spoke of Ataturk's fury that the Turkish lands were occupied by several European countries in the aftermath of World War I. 
This occupation was made official by the Treaty of Sevres in 1920. According to the treaty, Southwest Anatolia goes to France and Italy. Armenia is established as an independent state. Greece receives Thrace and the right to administer Izmir. The Turkish Straits are now to be under an international commission. Ottoman finances are placed under Allied control, and the capitulations are restored. But despite all of these rather harsh terms, the Ottomans have no choice but to sign the treaty. In pure Godfather terms, they were made an offer they could not refuse. Before moving any further, let's take a look at Mustafa Kemal's background. Kemal is born in 1881 in Salonika. He attends the military college and serves with distinction on the Eastern Syrian fronts during World War One, and of course also at Gallipoli. Kemal fervently admires European attitudes and institutions and sees these as a model for the future of Turkey. Kemal was a member of the Committee of Union and Progress, the political component of the Young Turk movement. But he did not align his views with those of the Triumvirate, the military junta which was ruling the Ottoman Empire during World War I. The Greek invasion of Anatolia leads to the emergence of several local Turkish resistance groups, as well as societies that defend citizens' rights by opposing those who are occupying and dividing Turkish soil. The groups are composed of volunteer militia units and roving guerrilla bands, and in 1919 they are led by three Ottoman field commanders. One of those leaders is Mustafa Kemal, who eventually leads an entire national movement. Mustafa Kemal is increasingly being known by his people as Ataturk. Ataturk's brand of Turkish nationalism is very different from the pan-Turkic ideals of Anwar Pasha, the leader of the Young Turks who dreamt of an Ottoman-scale state. Unlike Anwar Pasha, Ataturk believes that the once great Ottoman Empire became a dead weight, and the Turkish people now needed a homeland of their own. In the spring of 1920, Ataturk convenes the Grand National Assembly in Ankara. A new government is formed with Ataturk named president in opposition to the Ottoman government which still exists in Istanbul and yet is occupied by as well as controlled by European forces. The Ankara Assembly declares that the Istanbul government is controlled by foreign occupiers and can no longer adequately or accurately represent the will of the Turkish people. Mind you, the caliph in Istanbul would vehemently deny that assertion. But regardless, in January 1921, the Ankara Assembly adopts a constitution containing a national pact which becomes the basis for Turkish foreign policy. The pact renounces territorial claims that Turkey may have to any and all Arab provinces and affirms the right of full sovereignty of Turkey over remaining portions of the Ottoman Empire that are inhabited by a Turkish majority including the newly created Armenian Republic it also sets the stage for the government to refuse the rights to all non-Turks and people of foreign tutelage along with the pact a new parliament is installed and nationalists are elected which sets up Ataturk's government in Ankara while Europe is still occupying Istanbul how did the Europeans respond not well they pressure Sultan Mehmed VI the final caliph who obtains a fatwa claiming that the reforms made by Ataturk are un-islamic
Just a quick note regarding Toledo Society. 1400 OMG is one podcast in a network of podcasts called Toledo Society. To find out more, visit ToledoSociety.com. It is November the 1st, 1922. The Assembly in Ankara passes an historic resolution which does three things. It separates the Caliph from the Sultanate. This is critical. Caliphate had been part of the Ottoman Empire since 1517, and from that year on, the Sultan also wore the turban of the Caliph. Now, after all of those centuries, we find a division between those two offices. The resolution continues by eliminating the Sultanate altogether. Now, the Sultanate was a defining feature of Ottoman political life. It had been there since the very inception of the Ottoman dynasty in the 14th century. And with the stroke of a pen or a vote, we find now that the Sultanate is ended as an institution. And finally, the resolution designates Abdul Majid II as Caliph, marking the end of the Ottoman political era and the beginning of the Turkish era. The Caliph will now be in a position democratically elected by a body of national delegates. Ataturk recognized and realized quickly that abolishing the Caliphate would be met with condemnation among some Turks and among Muslims worldwide. Instead, he chooses to abolish the Sultanate and relegating the Caliphate to nothing more than a ceremonial and symbolic position, which Ataturk claims it has been, for all intents and purposes, for quite some time. It's 1923, and the capital of Turkey officially shifts to Ankara, symbolizing the Turkishness of the new state, smack in the middle of the Anatolian heartland, the very core of the Turkish people. On October the 29th, the Republic of Turkey is officially declared. The following year, on March the 3rd, 1924, the assembly makes the fateful decision to vote to abolish the caliphate and banish all members of the Ottoman royal family from Turkey. At the same time, the parliament abolishes the office of the Sheikh al-Islam, the highest ranking Islamic authority within the realm. Before 1924 ends, a new constitution is passed, reaffirming secularism, republicanism, and popular sovereignty for the Republic of Turkey. To say that Ataturk's plan for reforming Turkey was ambitious would be a gross understatement. Ataturk's policies become known as an ideology called Kemalism. They involved areas such as reformism, populism, nationalism, republicanism, state capitalism, and perhaps the most controversial and perhaps the most comprehensive of these reforms was in the area of secularism. With all of this momentum that Ataturk had of creating a brand new republic from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire, he moves to secularize the country with several reforms that are going to secularize the very nature of society. Religious schools are closed. In 1926, the Ministry of Religious Endowments is eliminated, with the assembly voting to abolish the Mejel, the Ottoman court manual, as well as Sharia as a legal system. In their place, the assembly adopts the Swiss code and an Italian-German-based penal and commercial code system. Sufi orders are dissolved, 
Worship at tombs and shrines is prohibited, and no, not because Ataturk had any Salafi inclinations. He criminalizes the fez and makes it law to wear Western hats, the primary symbol of a desire to westernize. But also, the decision to get rid of the fez had serious and profound religious implications. Wearing a hat that has a brim, such as the Western fedora which Ataturk now prescribed, would not allow a gentleman to wear his hat and still offer prayer. The fez, without a brim, allows somebody to still cover one's head and to pray. And so here we find that millinery, hat wearing, is not just fashion, but becomes something forced within the process of secularization. The Muslim lunar calendar is replaced by the solar Gregorian calendar. The weekly day of rest is moved from Friday to Sunday. And get this, the Quran and the Adhan are to be recited exclusively in Turkish. Ataturk does not seek to abolish Islam as a personal belief system. Instead, he hopes to remove it as an institutionalized regulating agent in the affairs of state and society. He envisions the development of a civil society constructed on human, not divine legislation, but which allows a large scope of religious observance. It's very easy to see that Ataturk could be blamed for removing Islam from Turkey, but instead what Ataturk seeks to do is to remove it from the dominance it had within public life, and yet still preserving it within the private realm. In some ways, Ataturk would argue that he was in fact preserving Islam by preventing it from being tainted by political and cultural factors within the public sphere. As these reforms are taking place, Ataturk also makes strides to have his newly formed government in Ankara officially recognized internationally. He establishes cordial relations between Turkey and Russia, and a national army forms from Turkish resistance forces that drive out the Greeks. In 1921, the Soviet Union and France both recognize Ankara as the legitimate government of Turkey. Following this, Italy also agrees to withdraw its forces from southern Anatolia. Ataturk calls for a peace conference to renegotiate the terms of the Treaty of Sevres. Britain, however, invites both the Ankara government and the Istanbul government to send representatives to negotiations which lead to some tensions between all three parties. The conference happens in late 1922 in Lausanne, Switzerland, and on July the 24th of 1923, at the Beau Rivage Hotel in Lausanne, the Treaty of Lausanne is signed and Turkish sovereignty is recognized over all areas claimed by the National Pact with the exception of Mosul in Iraq. That's all for this episode of 1400 OMG. In the next episode, we'll look into some of the external forces that led to the abolishment of the Caliphate. We'll also look at the Arab bid to claim or reclaim the Caliphate. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to let us know your thoughts. If you'd like to reach out to us, visit ToledoSociety.com. 